0: Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the no BS marketing podcast. I'm Daniel Murray and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn
1: the f*** up. Hey, marketing besties, and welcome back to another episode of the Marketing Hill Mash. Now, I know what you're thinking. Who's this random guy speaking? Where's Daniel? I'm Aiden. I run socials for TMM, and Daniel's sitting this episode out, and I'm filling in. But don't worry. Daniel will be back soon. Now, you're a true marketing bestie, so you know the one question we ask all of our guests. What's the one marketing hill you die on? And we've had some incredible answers over the years. So I compiled some of the best marketing hills I could find, starting with this first take from Vanessa Bonds, no big deal, but Vanessa is professor of organizational behavior at Cornell and the author of the best-selling book, You Have More Influence Than You Think. And she had some incredible advice for anyone out there struggling with the art of rejection. So let's get into it.
2: The thing I feel most confident in where I would, I you know, maybe it's not a hill I would die on, but it's like... I would be shocked right, if my recommendations on this didn't wind up being true or these findings didn't wind up replicating long-term because my main area of research is on asking for things. And I've been doing it for over 15 years now. We've run studies where we've had our participants ask other people for things. And at this point, they've asked over 15,000 people for things. And we find this really consistent effect that, again, I would just be so surprised um, and I feel so confident at least coming up with recommendations from it. And so the basic effect is that people think other people are more likely to say no to them than they actually are. And we've had our participants ask strangers for favors and guess how likely they are to, you know, do them these favors, whether it's donating to charity Filling out a survey that they have to get filled out, uh, borrowing their cell phone, you know, walking them to a certain location that they pretend not to be able to find. So all these different things, people think that you know people are going to be rejecting them about twice as often as they actually are when we have our participants make these requests. And interestingly, we've had them ask strangers, we've had them ask friends, we've had them ask and different ways we've had them offer money like we've done so many variations of this and I'd say the biggest takeaway is that people say yes more than we think and so on the one hand if you need something people are more likely to do it for you than you think right on the other hand Part of that is because we find that it's hard for people to say no to like find the words. If you imagine yourself on the other side, someone comes up to you and they're like, hey, I'm in a bind. Could I borrow your cell phone? Even if you don't want to give them your phone, it's awkward and you have to come up with the words and it's this kind of like, what do I say? So there's kind of two takeaways. Like if you need something, people are more likely to do it for you than you think. At the same time, if you're asking someone for something that they feel uncomfortable with, they find it harder to say no to you than you think. That to me is just a really strong finding. And then the other biggest finding in that area is that this is really true face-to-face but not over email. And so I think this is something that's helpful in so many ways to know is that when you talk to someone face-to-face, they're so much more likely to say yes than if you email them. In one study, they were 34 times more likely to say yes face-to-face than over email, which was just a huge effect. But our participants in that study thought that it would be about the same, that the compliance rates or the yeses would be about the same no matter how they asked, because they thought what people do is they kind of weigh the costs and benefits and decide whether they want to do something when in fact... People base a lot of their decisions just on emotion and connection, like social connection. And so if you're standing there face to face with someone asking for something, it's a lot harder to say no to someone's face. You also trust them more because they're right there in front of you. There's just more of a social connection. And so it's really hard to say no. An email you can ignore right or you can come up with the perfect way to say no if you feel like you need to respond to it so it's just so much easier to say no or avoid doing something when it, the request comes over email
0: do you see this, that same effect over zoom than in person because over zoom you might not have the same you're not in person you know, have the you can't see every social cue that they're having. they have and they they can't look anywhere else to ask someone else an answer. So that'd be an interesting thing to see if, do people say more in per, I mean, yes in person more than over Zoom, because I'm interested in that.
2: We actually did those studies as well. During the pandemic, a lot of people I know had to quickly change the way they were studying things, or all of a sudden new questions were kind of even more interesting to people. And so one of the things we did was to actually look at this question now that so many people are using Zoom and the phone and, I guess, mostly Zoom uh, as opposed to the phone. But we wanted to test the phone as well. We did a couple studies where we compared face-to-face to Zoom to the phone to email. We wanted to sort of understand what it was about each of those uh, modes of communication that might change compliance rates so we didn't know if it was like the face-to-face element of zoom like is that what's important or is it the fact that it's a synchronous uh, medium where two people are talking at the same time and so I have to come up with my answer on the spot so that could be the phone and zoom right you ask me a question I have to answer you right there But with Zoom, I actually see your face, so I would have to say no to your face. So we're like, which of these things is going to be most important? So we compared all these different media, and what we found was that nothing beat face-to-face. Just like hands down, standing in front of someone face-to-face is way more effective to get what you want than any other kind of medium. But if you don't have access to someone face-to-face, which, I mean, there's plenty of times we just can't meet with someone face-to-face – Zoom and the phone were both just wildly better than email. So email is like the worst thing. And it's funny because when we asked people, they thought they would all be almost the same. They definitely didn't think there would be huge differences between these different types of media. And I think part of it is like we think that when we write an email, we can, again, be super articulate. We think that's really important. I can articulate my thoughts. I can make a really clear argument, something that like is going to clearly convince someone. But anyone who's been on the receiving end, like we don't even read emails that carefully, right? And so much of it is not about the perfectly articulated thought. It's about just a conversation and kind of just seeing where someone's coming from. And there's so many, as you said, nonverbals when you're in person, even more than over Zoom. And so we don't often realize how much of a difference it makes, but it does in fact seem to make a huge difference in person.
0: I could definitely see that. I think I'm just thinking about people breaking up with people. And it's just people do easily do it over email because they avoid that or text back in the day, there's some because they avoid that human to human interaction. And it's harder to say no to someone or articulate that. But it's so much easier. And this is actually pretty interesting, because I think it just gives when people are saying, stop these sales events or these in-person meetups and marketing, it's actually, we probably need to go meet our customers still and we probably need to go talk to people face-to-face because we build that interaction. And then also customers can come up with a ridiculous response. And because even me, when I'm on email, I can weigh pros and cons. I haven't hours to respond. I could talk to 20 people before giving an answer.
1: Look, we all like money, but marketing isn't just about the money. It's about fixing someone else's problems. And Dale Dupree, the founder of the Sales Rebellion, explains why it's so important to fight back against the mediocrity of sales normalcy.
3: One question I have for you, too, is what is a sales hill that you would die on? This one? (laughs) I'll die
4: on all of them, bro, that have anything to do with the legacy that we're leaving as salespeople. So I'll die on the hill that says that metrics are an empty process in regards to ultimately developing and designing the type of outcome that a company really totally desires. Because look, right now, I think the average across the board for most companies, like if you take all the companies that are out there. Talking about how they have the best sales culture, I think somewhere in the 30 to 40% is like the actual quota attainment for those people. So here you have like very metrics-driven organizations preaching metrics and pretending as if somehow they are God and that they're the only way to truly have success. Yet the reps are at 30 to 40% of total quota attainment. I'll die on the hill where we talk about commissions being the most important thing in sales. Money is a byproduct of good service. And service is is ultimately servant leadership. As a sales rep, you have to understand that you're here to fix someone's problems and to actually care about fixing someone's problems. You're not here to sell your product and make a ton of money. Again, buy products. Like I'll die on that hill all day, bro. Like, and I'm a guy that made a ton of money and and my sales career so far, and I I don't plan to stop. (laughs) You know, but at the same time, the things that are really monetarily valuable for me are the relationships that I have, the ability to be able to, to like just call one person and say, I'm stuck. I need help. And then the idea that I can also call like another thousand on top of that person. That's where real success lies. And that's where real value is ultimately. So I mean, I could die on a lot of them, dude, at the end of the day, but I think ultimately, I'll die on the hill of rebellion. I'll die on the hill of fighting back against the status quo and the mediocrity of what's, what sales has been preached to us as when it comes to it being normal. It's all a lie. It's all a stereotype. It's all to keep you in line, have you play by the rules, make sure that you don't cause too much attention to you, but instead to build my company, to get it to the place that I want to get it, so I can leave and then be a founder for the seventh time somewhere else. Right? That to me, like it's a bunch of garbage. And so I, I'll I'll die of the hill rebellion all day because of that, which you know encompasses a lot of different, ultimately a lot of different topics, but. I think that's what we need. We need people to not just focus on like one thing and why it's wrong, we need to focus on like what could be better. And we need to to rebel and choose those things and run in that direction because the more of us that do it, the more it becomes normal.
1: One of the best things you can do for your marketing career is to invest in the people you meet along the way. Take the time to pay it forward. Our next marketer, Anthony Canada, believes you need to be asking more people to get a cup of coffee or to hop on a quick Zoom call with you.
5: I think the thing for me was I underappreciated, not underappreciated, but I've seen the fruits of investing in relationships from the earliest days of my career. You know, we talk a lot about humans, like marketing like humans, like people buying the products are humans, but like think about your career journey and the people you meet, the mentors that you're able to access, kind of the relationships that are forged, you know, building a company together, especially if you're working in a startup, it's pretty powerful the folks you will meet along your way in your marketing journey. And you'll also be surprised how many folks are, are willing to, you know, let you buy them a cup of coffee or do, jump on a quick Zoom um, and kind of introduce themselves, share their what they've learned along their way with you. So, In almost every step of my career, I couldn't have done it without the support of people that I've met along the way. So invest in the relationships, keep up with them, you know, in the sense of like following up, you know, scheduling time, like make it a priority and then pay it forward. You know, you'll get to a point where you'll have folks asking you for marketing advice and you'll be on podcasts just like this and make sure that, you know, you take the call, you say yes to the meetings and you're able to share a little bit of what you've learned in your journey, you know, along with others, along for others.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. I think I learned that from when I started and the first couple people who invited me on and then like paying it forward to the younger marketers or the marketers who are starting to build? Not even younger marketers, like just marketers who are just starting their journey in content creation, or yeah. whoever they are.
1: Creativity is everything. It's not just limited to high concept ad campaigns or creative departments. At least, not according to Nextiva's VP of Marketing, Mark Jung, who argues that creativity can and needs to happen in every industry
0: one question i always ask on this podcast and i I didn't ask it before is what is a marketing hill you would die on what's uh, something that you feel strongly about in marketing
6: the biggest one for me is creativity can happen in any industry in any landscape regardless of who you market to i think that the biggest cop-out answer i hear marketing too many times is oh i'm an x industry I sell why product, I can't be creative. No, I think anyone can reframe in the examples we gave today, how you bring creativity into the fold, how you build process within your team, how you start to think about things differently. And to my point, creativity is not wild Mr. Beast ideas and slapstick. Creativity can come in the form of elegance and subtlety like Dove, I don't care if you're in the most regulated industry and you're at the Jet Propulsion Lab at NASA and can't speak about what you're doing. I guarantee you there are creative ways that you can bring that in. And the second level down is people say, oh, I'm in B2B. I'm selling to chief human resource officers. If my emails and my messages don't start with dear ma'am, I'm not getting a response. You are marketing to people. I was in management consulting in... Uh, one of our fields was outplacement. So outplacement is when companies are laying off large groups of employees, specifically in the financial sector. Some of our best performing creative was human and completely different from some of the large faceless corporations we were competing against. The amount of people that told me, you are wrong. You have to write white papers and surveys and bring formality we were one of the mid-sized firms, I'm in Canada, don't hold it against me, who outcompeted multi-billion dollar companies and won 50% of the business in our space against companies a hundred times our size. Why? Because we lean into creativity as our superpower. Why does content fail to fly?
1: According to the Lavender Marketing Team, it's because you need to take more risks and tell your legal team to F off. Well, (laughs) the Lavender Marketing Team is doing B2B a little differently than most. Here's what Will, Jen, Chelsea, and Todd from their marketing team had to say about the marketing hills they would die on.
3: What is a marketing hill you would die
7: on? I mean, I'm just gonna go back to the gated content thing because I'm in several... Intimate groups of content marketers across different company and they're all in different companies in tech. And every single one of them still gates content, and every single one of them still has a hard time explaining to leadership why gating content is archaic. So I will always stay on that hill. Um, I think there are hills that I'm maybe a year ago said I would die on and like oh yeah like i've actually like learned and evolved and grown and i don't feel that way anymore and i think that's that's healthy that's good um, but this is one that i have a really strong conviction on and as a hill i will always i will absolutely die on that gating content you're just not you're doing a disservice to everyone in your audience you understand to a certain extent i think some industries and icps are okay with gated content you know for example uh, early childhood tech companies that are catering to educators. They are they're fine giving their email for content. But in general, if I want a piece of content, I just want to like consume it and be helped and enjoy whatever it is that you spent time creating and writing. And when you create that barrier, it just kind of a you're asking someone to jump through a hoop, so you're more likely to lose them. But more importantly, when you don't, when you are not gating it and you're just making frictionless to access whatever is helpful you're building trust and loyalty and then that'll always like have an element of reciprocity so that is my hill
3: but i always say that if you're going to get content your content better be like 100x better than what's behind it otherwise nobody's going to read it like the only way i would ever like think about getting content is like if i had like a community and there's a bunch of other content behind there and i'm like hey to get this content, you had to be in this community. Like That's the only way I would get content. Otherwise, there's no other way I would think about it.
7: And there's other benefits when you do that too, right? There's other benefits that come along.
3: Yeah, well,
8: I'll go to you. What's the marketing hill? You, know, you would die. Brands can have a voice. It's not even a hill, you know? But it's like, I think people just need to take more risks, honestly. I think that's probably the, the, the hill I'll die on. Tell your legal team to F off. Which most companies can't, <laughs> but we don't have a <laughs> <them there>, So, haha, <laughs> suckers. Um, and just, just lean all the way in, like <laughs> go harder and be willing to take those risks because they'll pay off. And if they do, and, and otherwise you just become this wave of mediocrity. And I don't know, I just feel like every great story, someone took a big risk along the way. You never hear these things where they played it it's safe and marketers are meant to be creative. And I, I still call myself a salesperson today because I don't lose my my sales following. But if you're not being creative, if you're not thinking outside the box, if you're not doing something that no one's ever done before, then then you're not, or at least in your space, done before, then um, you're probably playing it too safe and no one will ever remember your name. Yeah. W- w- well, I think of you as a salesperson who knows how to do marketing. Well, vice versa. I think a lot of there's a lot of examples of people who have gone either direction and are so often top performers either way because they understand the whole journey of a customer, right? Which is where a lot of people fall short.
3: Yeah. Um, plus one on risk. It's more risky to be risk averse.
8: Yeah. So that's yeah. a good way. I like that. Yeah. Jen, I'll go to you. What's the know you die out?
7: Don't make all of your marketing geared at the decision maker. Don't do it. Right. we. I think it's so, so tempting to just be like, oh, let's talk, let's message to them. Um, I think today I spent a lot of time talking about how consensus buying is just the norm now for most organizations. And if you're only messaging to the top, you're missing a huge opportunity to connect with people at the middle and the bottom who ultimately will have a say in the decision to buy or not buy from you. I love Todd's content on this. Um, Love Todd's content on this because I think Far too often, you see the me- like the content. The message is always geared to the person who carries the budget. Imagine if you have people that are really passionately advocating for you upwards to that person. It makes a difference. Um, so that would be my hill.
3: Yeah, it's also like a lot of people geared to like the decision maker versus like the person who actually is going to use the content in the day to day and use the product and the day to day basis. It just just blows my mind because first of all, the decision maker. Doesn't really, doesn't really care most of the time. like of all, they just signing a piece of paper that says, "Yes, is it going to make your job better?" Yeah, okay, let's 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 do it. Unless, like, the decision maker is the person using the product, yeah, that's a different story. But, um, but I love that. I think I also think you need to go beyond this little group of people that you think. That's why even like recommendation, to like paid advertising is, like don't just be like target CFOs. Like target everybody in that that company that you're trying to co- like go after. Um, so, plus one on that, Todd. I'm gonna go to to you. You're killing me, Jen. You're killing me. <laughs> I
7: tell you now. You say it better than I did. You know, all I'm you gonna.
9: Again. I'm gonna. I'm gonna add on that because that's that's kind of the direction I was going to. Um. I think the the hill is that your content needs to have like a defined purpose. Um this is this is something I came to in the in the same like experimentation I did with with those meetings was the the first question I would always ask people is like, because these meetings were about like getting on TikTok. My first question was like, okay, why do you want to create video on TikTok? Or why do you want to create entertain video? And the purpose they always gave me was, uh, I want to increase brand awareness, or I want to create more inbound. Okay, you know, demo how many requests. times have you
0: heard a company like talk about those, SEO those like it's the same thing as a like block.
9: You can't, you can't say it's like not. Okay, SEO. Okay, I want more brand awareness. Its this is thing. this is like a tactic to do that, like but that's not a, the
3: only that's a, tactic um, for improving your online of visibility. Of a good purpose. So, like the way that the I look at it is. Heel, from Going the co-founders said, of like Beam content, any content
9: should have one Brooklyn three Nash purposes. So like and one Sam Hembrid is it's gonna be like one trying to I change. I would totally the strategic die on two. Here's what they have to say somebody. about SEO. So like, that's like your top-down strategic narrative type of content, trying to think about change the way you think about things, step down from that, call it I call it middle out implementation. That's like the how to content. So like If I am successful in changing the way you think about this thing and you accept that and push it down into your company, like the people that have to execute on it, they can't get that from like the strategy conversation. So like now we come one step below and it's like, how do we implement that stuff? And then the final one, which is like everybody ignores, which is like, I think why Lavender to this point has been so successful is that evangelism piece. So like evangelizing the end users of your product that, you know, they, they're not necessarily making the decision, but like what I say, the the goal of like evangelism content, which like Will Aiken's really good at Lavender Joe, like that's the type of like entertaining content that I'm talking about. What it does is like it, it makes the people that use your product love it that much more. And it makes the people that don't use your product want to use it whether they're decision maker or not they're still wanting to use it and they can sell it internally so like from a purpose long story short whatever you're creating you need to define the purpose for that piece of content before you go down the path of creating it
3: yeah i think i think i like that you're separating because i think there's end result of what you want out of your content and there's like the purpose that you create your content and those are two separate things like You asked someone the purpose, and they said brand awareness. That's not the purpose. Like that's a goal you're trying to achieve with your content. Like the, like my purpose of creating content is to like give a break in the feed for marketers. But then, like my each content has a different goal. Meaning, like ones for like to get attention. The other ones to get in, have intention for people come to my longer form content intent content because it's more tactical how to like you said and the other the other part is like i think a lot of people leave out the the end user which why you create content for them is like that's why i'm creating content for like the marketers that are coming into marketing that are like don't know marketing a lot of people who are BP say like that's easy content but like when you were starting a marketing was that easy content for you like did you understand that cuz I didn't understand that like what media company was or what content was or what social media was. I just knew the concepts like broadly what they were. So
0: this is this is great. Thanks so much for listening. Keep tuning in to hear more great insights from the coolest marketers from around the world. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe and follow the Marketing Millennials podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, I would greatly appreciate you giving us a five-star rating. It helps bring more marketers into our community.